Hey, my name is Nate, and I uh, serve as a, as a husband, husband, dad. Thanks, Tommy, because that is heavy. I'm grateful that you did that. That is really heavy. Wow. And uh, serve here as one of the pastors under our lead pastor, Larry. And most of the people at Grayson have been kind to me. The last um, three months, you guys have been very kind to me. I used to be a lead pastor over in Jeffersonville at Oak Park, and my bride and I were moving into our house, unloading the truck, and unbeknownst to me, I moved into a Graceland Baptist Church member, and he did not offer to come help me unload my truck. And he was upstairs watching me unload my truck, and evidently something in the truck went into his yard, and he opened up the window and yelled at me, get your Kentucky stuff off of my lawn. And he proceeded to shut the door, the, the window, and the blind, and he laughed uh, hysterically to himself for 15 minutes in his bedroom because he's a peculiar individual. I don't want to mention his name accidentally because Mike Schoonover is very sensitive. And, um, but um, uh, Mike's, Mike's a good friend, and I do remember him yelling. I don't remember what he said, but uh, he, he really didn't offer to help. So pray, pray for Mike. Uh, it is God's kindness. I've, I've said this a lot. I hope that it doesn't become too familiar. It's God's kindness uh, for me to serve under Larry and be here. I serve full-time with the North American Mission Board, and people will often ask me regularly, hey, how's the transition been from the, the land of the sun, the Valley of the Sun, Phoenix, to southern Indiana? And though I'm full-time with the North American Mission Board and very much part-time here, I, uh, I always lead out with my, my service here, and I'm really grateful to be here. It's God's kindness and um, kindness and God's grace are something that we don't deserve. So it's a joy to be with you um, and serve alongside of you. Hey, we're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. We're talking about suffering, pain, distress, anguish this morning. Uh, we're going to stand and read this text together in just a moment. But Jesus says, I thirst. And what is so often the case when there is a physical declaration, a physical description of something that's going on, there is oftentimes a spiritual component and spiritual details to what the biblical writer, author, and oftentimes what Jesus is saying. Spiritual undertones, a spiritual component. And we'll get there in just a moment. But when we read the words, I thirst, I think it's appropriate to take that physical description and understand there's a spiritual, it's symbolic of something spiritual. What do we thirst for? And this is a safe place, right? Church should be a safe place where we can share struggles. Oftentimes it's not the case, but it should be, and we should grow more and more faithful for it to be a safe place. But here's something that I thirst for, I pursue, and I want. I want, I want people to like me. Like, I, I mean, I, you say, well, that sounds really elementary. Well, you probably want that too. I want people to like me. I want to go in a room and be liked and loved. Here's some other things that people thirst for and desire and pursue, right? Young parents, they thirst for and desire. I just want a quiet moment. I don't want my kids in this moment at all. Be gone from me. Or maybe somebody who's a little older. They say, I'm, I'm reaching this season of life where I'm going to retire, and retiring is, uh, is imminent, and so I'm thinking about what I've saved or invested, and, and, and I, I don't have enough and I've started late, and I think about, I just, I want, I thirst for, I, I'm pursuing more than anything, I want some financial stability. Or, or maybe it's 
respect in your marriage or you want to feel cherished and loved in your marriage or you just want your husband and your wife or your kids to, to appreciate who you are and what you bring to the table. Maybe you want a boss to recognize uh, your skill and your competency and what you bring to the table because if somebody would just recognize you and take the time to look at you, they'd see how what a gift you are to the company, to this particular organization, and you'd get monetary compensation, you'd get oversight, whatever it is, all of us, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian this morning, all of us, if we're being honest and transparent, thirst and long and pursue and desire things and persons and, and ambitions that in and of themselves are not a bad thing, a wrong thing. They might even be a good thing. But oftentimes, what is the case, we desire them in an inordinate fashion. And those desires that can be good have become ruling desires. And when I don't get the monetary compensation, when I don't get the physical health, when I don't get the respect, when I don't get the rest for my weary soul, when I don't get peace and quiet, when I don't get recognition, fill in the blank, I get frustrated or angry because those things have become something that I'm ultimately pursuing. And it creates pain and anguish and frustration and heartache in our lives. When we look at these verses, what do they teach us? What are we to glean from these verses? What's the relevance of this verse? If you are physically able, let's stand together and let's read John 19, verse 28 through 30. We're going to read this together so you can read out loud. It will be on the screens, I believe, as well. You can turn on your phone or the Bible. I'm reading out of the ESV, and this is what John writes for us. And let's read this out loud together. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word to you and to me. May God bless the preaching of it. You can be seated. These are some of the last words and some of the last phrases of Jesus, and it's a word to be understood, a word to be pondered and treasured over, and more and more, I'll mention this at the very end of the sermon, more and more we want our functional theology to match our confessional theology, right? We want who we are when we leave Graceland Baptist Church, when we get into our car and we go to a place we're going to go eat, when we go to our neighborhood, when we go out to where we work and we go to the ball field when our kids are playing recreation, when we gather together, we want our lives to match what we confess what we profess with our lips. And so often, what is the case for everybody in this room, Christian and non-Christian, we espouse certain beliefs, but what we need to grow in faithfulness is seeing that, that, uh, that spectrum, that uh, canyon of our functional theology, we want it to match what we believe. We want it to match what we say, right? We want our lives, our actions to match our, our lips. We want to be able to say to people, hey, uh, follow me in what I say and follow me in what I, in what I do. We want our functional theology because what we do in our lives is really kind of the litmus test of what we believe. If I say I love my wife, but I constantly talk about her and say what a nag she is, and I don't ever want to be around her, and I think about other people other than my wife, you would say, Nate, I'm not really sure that you really love your wife. 
right? We want, we want your functional theology of your love for your wife to match your confessional theology. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But there's three truths that I want you to see this morning in this text. The first is the humanity of Jesus. I think John is writing and recording, and one of the things that we need to glean from this is to understand the humanity of Jesus. Secondly, the reality of suffering or the answer to the problem of pain and suffering. The answer to the problem of pain and suffering. And then thirdly, the unfolding of God's plan. And really, I think that third point is the big idea. So if someone were to ask you, hey, at Graceland, what was the main idea? What was the sermon about? You could say and should say the unfolding of the plan of God. Because I think point one and point two really come under point three. That's the the main truth to take away from the text, the unfolding of God's plan. But first, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was the God-man. Individuals who believe the Bible is the Word of God understand that Jesus is both God and man, one God with two natures. You say, well, how can that be? Help me understand this theological truth. I would point you to our lead pastor, Larry Riley. He would be glad to talk to you about that. But often what what happens is that we so uh, want to uh, reverence the deity of Christ, and we oftentimes unconsciously suppress the humanity of Christ, rendering him barely unrecognizable as a man. In the incarnation, Jesus took on humanity. Theologians call it God put some skin on. Was Jesus God? Yes, Jesus was God. He spoke wisdom unlike anyone else, He displayed power over nature and diseases and demonic oppression and possession and even death. A storm would subside, a devil would flee, and death would eventually be conquered through his conquering of death. Was Jesus a man? Yes, he was a man. He came into the world as a helpless, dependent child. We're told that he grew in wisdom and stature in Luke chapter 1. We find him like any small boy and girl doing what? Asking questions of his parents and people around him. As a man, he grew tired in his body. He experienced hunger. He slept. He rejoiced. He was angry. He groaned. He longed for things to be different. All of this is reflective of the humanity of Christ. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus thirsted. God does not thirst. The angels do not thirst. Revelation chapter 7 tells us that believers And the new heaven are not going to thirst. We thirst now because we are human and live in this world. Jesus thirsted because he was a man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And it was in the midst of this suffering, as the God-man hanging on the cross, that Jesus, in his humanity, thirsted. He says, I thirst. So we see his humanity. Say, Nate, what's the relevance of understanding the humanity of Christ? Well, have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had a close friend betray you and you thought they who were once loyal and they were close to you and they betrayed you and you never thought that they would be disloyal to you? Have you ever been misunderstood by family members, by people at your work? Have you ever been abandoned? There's people who have had their spouse abandon them or kids that you love and cherish and still love and cherish, have abandoned you and they've rejected you? Have you ever been tempted with sin? Everybody in this room, Christian, non-Christian, can identify with that. And yet Jesus in his humanity, what do we see from the scriptures? Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was misunderstood continually. 
Jesus was abandoned, not just by family and friends, but on the cross of Christ. The Bible says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, the eyes of the Lord are too pure to look upon evil. Who became sin for us? Christ. And in that moment, that's why Christ yells at my God, my God, why would you abandon me? Why would you forsake me? You ever been forsaken? Ever been abandoned? Ever been rejected? Ever been misunderstood? Ever been tempted with sin? Don't make Jesus so transcendent that you forget that he's near. That you forget that he's human. That the saviorhood of Jesus is possible because he's God in the flesh, but he's God in the flesh. He's the God-man who can identify with you. You don't go through anything in life where Jesus can't say, I have no idea what you're going through. I can't, I can't relate to that. I don't have any empathy and compassion for you. Jesus is the God-man, and we see his humanity. He's full of compassion. Betrayed, misunderstood, abandoned, rejected, tempted with sin. Yeah, Jesus too. We see his humanity. Secondly, we see the answer to the problem of pain and suffering. It sounds like a lofty point there. I'll be preaching on that for the next nine hours. The answer to the problem of pain and suffering. Life is full of sorrow. You don't need a, a preacher to convince you that life is full of sorrow and pain and hardship. Just this morning, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor in St. Louis and a dear friend of his who has a wife and four young children woke up this morning and had a heart attack and died. Uh, 1,700 miles to the west in Phoenix, Arizona at the church where I used to pastor at Foothills Baptist Church. They're having a celebration, service of celebration for Ken Golba, a dear friend of my wife and, and mine, officiated his son's wedding. He fought cancer for seven years and finally the Lord showed him mercy and took him home. Life is full of sorrow. Life is full of hardships, and how are we to deal with it? The Bible instructs us in the way of Jesus' suffering how we are to deal with it. Jesus' words point us in the right direction. You've got all sorts of perspectives in life about suffering and pain and anguish and distress and brokenness. You've got some people, there are very few, who would deny that evil and suffering and pain and hardship exist. You've got people who are Stoics who say there is some fixed mechanical law where you're going to experience pain and suffering and hardship. And what we need to do, this is just your lot in life, what we need to do is have a stiff upper lip and just try to control our response to suffering. You've got other people who say there is suffering, there is pain, there is hardship and anguish and distress. And what we need to do in life is really be about pleasure. The Epicureans, the philosophers years ago said this, eat, drink, and be Married for tomorrow we die. So live life to the fullest, right? This is what oftentimes college students do. That's why it's such a formative time. Who you are in college oftentimes follows you for the rest of your life. Eat, drink, and be married. They're suffering, but your job in life is to avoid suffering. But that's actually not biblical either. The Bible says it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you would believe in him and also suffer. Who wants the belief part? Who wants the suffering part? Right? No, no one wants, but that's part of being a believer. 
and a follower of Christ. There's other people who say there's no meaning to suffering. There's a hopelessness or a purposelessness to suffering. Life doesn't have meaning, but we, don't, we want to respond biblically to suffering and distress and anguish. Nothing is meaningless. Everything in life has meaning. Everything in life has meaning. Suffering oftentimes is linked to sin. There was no suffering before the fall, and there's no suffering in heaven, right? I long for that day. There's no suffering, no rejection, no abandonment, no disease, no ailment, no hardship. There's nothing but peace and unity and glory. We're all moving towards that day, but we want to be cautious because oftentimes what we'll do, maybe out loud, but as the Puritan said years ago, we have such thing called teeth and teeth keep our tongues encased into our mouth and we get really good about saying things that come to our mind and thank God for teeth that keep our tongue entrapped. But sometimes we say things out loud or we say things in our heart and we'll say things like they're suffering because of some secret sin. Or they've got hearts because they haven't been at Graceland in a couple weeks. I knew the Lord would get them. And we think sometimes there's a one-to-one ratio. And oftentimes there is because of our sin. We suffer. But oftentimes we suffer at the hands of people's sinful decisions, right? Because of the decisions they made because of the hardships they're going through, and we're a community of people, and our decisions affect each other. We all suffer. We're all sinners. But our suffering isn't always for our own sin. In this passage, Jesus' pain, his anguish, his distress, and suffering is instructed because despite the fact that he was suffering, despite that he was suffering at the hands of evil men, he was not suffering for his own sin. He was suffering for my sin. He was suffering for your sin. Jesus' suffering speaks of the reality of sin and pain and anguish and hardship and brokenness, not only in your life and in my life, but in the world over You have a lot of people who will say things like, you know, we don't really need religion. We don't really need Jesus. I don't need your Jesus. He's a a crutch. I'm fine. We're okay. Humanity's really okay. We're not as healthy as we could be, but at the end of the day, you're okay and I'm okay. Well, that's not right. You've got some people who would maybe take a little bit more of a pessimistic view of life. They might say, hey, we're not okay. We're sick. We're We're not mortally sick. There, there's, there's, there's no situation that's hopeless because, listen, we've survived a lot of things over the years. Starvation and diseases and wars and economic turmoil. Do not call the mortician yet. We can do things on our, in and of ourselves. But the Bible takes a very sobering view of humanity, doesn't it? The Bible says that every single person is spiritually dead apart from the good news of Jesus Christ. Spiritual death is no respecter of persons from top to bottom. It becomes your marching orders when you enter into this life. And God knows our suffering. He knows our pain. He knows our spiritual disease. He knows our spiritual condition. He knows our sin. And what does God do? How does he respond to suffering? How does God respond to pain and brokenness? Does he hide? Does he run? Does he cower? What does God do? Jesus condescends to us 
steps into our world and pursues us and moves close to us when we did not move close to him, when we didn't want anything to do with him. He pursues us and he steps into our place, living the life that we were called to live and did not live and have not lived and dying the death that we were called to die, but he stands in our place. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus. We deserve to die for our sins, but he died in our place. Praise God for that truth. And how can a holy, righteous, perfect, awesome God have a relationship with us? It's on the cross that we see the Father punishing Jesus for the sins of the world. The Bible says in Isaiah, it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father to punish the Son. Why? God is just and has to punish sin. But the book of Romans says that he's not only just, he's the justifier. How can God be both just... He has to punish sin and the justifier declaring sinners to be righteous and forgiven and rescued and redeemed and heaven bound. Because on the cross of Christ, God's justness and his mercy are perfectly reconciled. So that all we have to do is simply say what Larry mentioned earlier. Father, I want to believe and trust in your son. I want that rest for my soul. I want freedom from my sins. I want forgiveness. I want a relationship with you. I want to be heaven bound. I want to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. I want a hope that's rooted in a person. I want Jesus. All you got to do is acknowledge you're a sinner. You don't have everything together and trust and believe in him. So if that's you right now, all you need to do in the quietness of your heart, say, Jesus, it's time for me to trust in you. And the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Suffering in the hands of God is fully redeemed because Jesus' suffering and his death came about to alleviate the ultimate suffering and pain and anguish for our souls. Brokenness, pain, hardship has meaning because we see the one who didn't deserve to have pain and suffering and anguish and distress, but steps into our place so it give its meaning and that ultimately would be redeemed as we have faith in him. Thirdly and lastly, we see the unfolding plan of God, which I humbly think is really the main point of this passage, the unfolding plan of God. You know, elsewhere in the book of John, Jesus is asked, what is your food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father. Ever wonder, what does that mean? I mean, there's all sorts of peculiar statements in the Bible. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father. What does that mean? We don't often think about food. We think about food typically when the sermon goes long, like, wow, this is long. I'm thinking about food now. And now all of you are thinking about food. It's part of who we are. It's part of being a person. What Jesus is saying is my food is to do the will of the Father. He's saying my life, the inclination of my heart, the very lifeblood of who I am is grounded in the scriptures. My food is to do the Bible, is to do God's word. In his temptation, the word was his defense. In his teaching, the word was his authority. In controversies with the religious teachers, his appeal was the word. His delight was the scriptures to please and obey the Father. And we see it further in this text. Jesus says in John chapter 19, verse 21, I thirst in order to do what? Fulfill all scripture. 
every single word, every single phrase, every single sentence, every single passage, every single chapter, every single book is moving towards the culmination of God's plan in Christ. Every single thing, it all goes together. Listen to some of these prophetic words that the Old Testament writers wrote down that happened days, hours before the crucifixion of Christ, upon the crucifixion of Christ, and after the betrayal of a friend, Psalm 41, verse 9, the forsaking of the disciples, Psalm 33, verse 11, the false accusation, Psalm 35, verse 11, the silence before his judges, Isaiah 53, verse 7, Jesus being crucified with sinners, Isaiah 53, verse 12, being mocked and crucified and mocked by the spectators, Psalm 109, verse 25, the taunting of non-deliverance, Psalm 22, verse 7, the gambling of his garments, Psalm 22, verse 18, the prayer for his enemies, Isaiah 53, verse 12, being forsaken and abandoned by the Father, Psalm 22, verse 1, the thirsting psalm that we see here in John 19, 28, which is found in Psalm 69, verse 21, the yielding of his spirits into the hand of the Father, Psalm 31, verse 5, those bo his bones not being broken, Psalm 34, verse 20, and the burial in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9. What am I doing? I'm just telling the Bible goes together. All of it goes together. It's culminating in the unfolding plan of God. But several of these were out of his control. Several of these were out of his control. The verdict, the false accusations, the fact that none of his bones were broken. But some were in his control. Being silent, praying for his enemies, yielding his spirit and of the Father. And Jesus says here in John 19, verse 21, he says, I thirst two words in order to do what? Fulfill scripture, meaning though the scriptures are going to be fulfilled, right? God does not make promises that he does not fulfill. God is faithful to his promises, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a son of man that he should change his mind. He does not lie, Titus chapter one, verse two. The scriptures were going to be fulfilled, but Jesus did not consider that a reason not to do anything. When it was within his power to bring about the fulfillment of scripture, he did so. And let me give you three examples of what that looks like in our life. We'll see that in just a moment. That Jesus has been meditating on the scriptures. He's been thinking of Psalm 22. And evidently his mind's gone through scripture after scripture and scripture. And evidently he's thinking, well, that was fulfilled. That was fulfilled. That's been accomplished. That's happened. Genesis, nothing left in Genesis. Exodus, nothing left in Exodus. Deuteronomy, nothing left in Deuteronomy. And then he comes to Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, they've not given me the sour wine to drink. And so what does Jesus say? I thirst in order to fulfill all Scripture In every single instance, Jesus was anticipatory of fulfilling the Scriptures. He came under the Scriptures and sought to fulfill them. The relevance, the application for believers is that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and we believe that it's all going to come true, right? We believe everything is going to come true. So what do we not do? We don't sit back and do nothing. 
We're not to be passive agents in the kingdom of God. What do we do? We get busy serving, living, praying, sharing, appealing, following after Christ. Let me give you three examples. First, John says elsewhere in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So a believer is going to be sanctified. We're going to be made to look more like Jesus by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. So what do we do? Let's just sit back. I ain't going to group. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to think about the Bible. I'm not going to pray the Bible. I'm not going to study the Bible. I'm not going to research the Bible. I don't want to know the Bible any more than I know now. What do we do? We avail ourselves to this book. You want to be more like Jesus? As a man, as a woman, as a boy or girl, as a married person, as a worker, as an accountant, as an engineer, as a neighbor, as a missionary, as a church member, you want to be more like Jesus? Avail yourself to the Bible and God will take the Bible and he will make you more like Jesus. We know it's going to happen, so we get busy doing it. Here's another one. In the same passage, Jesus prays for unity of the church. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 17. He prays that the church would be one, unified, as the Father and Jesus are one, so that the world might believe. The world looks at the church and says, you've got factions, you've got schisms, you've got disunity, you've got fallout. What are we to do? Are we to live and act any which way we want? We're actually not free to act any which way we want. If you're a believer, you've been bought by the invaluable blood of Christ. Our lives are His. So you come to Graceland. I know I'm getting a little personal. I'm not thinking of anybody. I won't mention names in this example, okay? Getting a little personal, but you're like, I didn't really like that song. It, we, we, we sang it differently. I really like Pastor Ryan. He's much more young and hip. He buttons his shirts all the way up to the top. Or, or I really... I really, I really like Larry. Who, who's this Nate guy? I don't, I don't really like this ministry initiative that we're doing. I don't, I don't like those banners out front. They, they, could have been, they could have been a different color. And I mean, examples abound. The church, I mean, we are full of people and all of us have preferences. I have preferences. And oftentimes my preferences come out and I begin to have a little, little gossip here, a little resentment here, a little frustration. I get my little holy huddle over here and we talk about what we like and what we don't like our little gospel ghettos, and we talk about it. You know, unity, unity is a precious thing, isn't it? Unity is a precious thing. And Jesus prays that they would be one. It's a prophetic word. So what do we do? We don't sit back passively. We work hard, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. We work hard diligently to preserve unity. We are diligently for it. Here's another one. Matthew 24, verse 14. The gospel will be preached in all the nations, and then Jesus is going to come back. More and more, more and more, I long for Jesus to come back. I have him praying that God would give me a loose grip on the things of the world and a tight grip on Jesus. But I, got, I still got a grip on the things of the world, and I need to remind myself, I'm not meant for this world. Jesus says, the gospel is going to be preached in all the nations, and then I'm going to come back. So what do I do? I ain't sharing Jesus with my neighbor. I'm not going on that mission trip. I'm not getting my passport. I don't want to pray. Somebody else can talk about Jesus with that person. What do we do? 
It's a prophetic word. This is going to happen. And what do we get busy sharing and telling and appealing and praying and making Jesus known wherever we go? And with all of that, what do we do? As we think about those three examples, and just put me on the hot seat, I fail. I fail to do those things. We all fall short. But Jesus thirsted to fulfill and obey all of Scripture because he knew that you and I thirst for everything and everyone but him at times. And in his thirsting and fulfilling Scripture, he makes salvation and freedom and forgiveness possible. And we can be changed by him. It's because of Jesus' thirst and his commitment to fulfill all scripture that we don't ultimately have to suffer anguish and have pain and distress. One individual said that Jesus is always thirsting for the salvation of precious souls as he cries on the cross. That was the outburst of the great heart of Christ as he saw the multitude and cried out to God, I thirst. He thirsted and endured suffering upon the cross in order to rescue mankind and to finish the work of salvation. This very day, he thirst in some respects, thirst for all those that will come to him who are weary and heavy laden and want rest for their soul. And he is still resolved to not cast any aside and all are welcome to find forgiveness in him. Jesus cried out, I thirst so that we may never have to thirst. Once at a feast in John chapter seven, he declared, if anyone thirst, let them come after me and drink. Jesus told the woman of Samaria in John chapter four, whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. And through our faith, in Christ, through the Spirit of God, our souls can be full. We want our functional theology to match our confessional theology. I really believe Jesus is enough. I really believe that he satisfies my soul, that I find rest in him. I don't have to work and merit heaven. It's done, it's finished. But oftentimes, I... Nate Milliken, pursue and long and desire things in my life that are more important and significant in my heart than Jesus. And I want my functional theology, who I am when I leave here, I want it to match my lips. But here's, here's the truth. Everything and everyone in this life, apart from Jesus, is gonna leave your soul parched and thirsty for more. God's created you. And you're going to find rest and forgiveness and satisfaction and fulfillment for your soul as you come to Jesus. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. So in this text, what do we see? We see the humanity of Jesus, the saviorhood of Jesus. He's the God-man who empathizes with you and with me. He knows what you're going through. Secondly, we see the answer to the problem of pain and suffering because pain and suffering has meaning and is redeemed in the finished work of Christ. Nothing is arbitrary. And thirdly, all of that brings us to this truth, the unfolding plan of God. 